we finished Joel last week. And I kind of mentioned another book of the Old Testament uh, that I thought you'd be interested in reading a portion of. And then I realized, I think actually I'd like to go to that particular book. And I don't know if you remember or not, but that particular book is the book of Hosea. And it is the book that precedes Joel in our Bible. So if you can remember where you found Joel the last time, just turn to the left a few pages and you'll be in the book of Hosea. Hosea is the first of the what are called minor prophets. The minor prophets are basically determined pretty much by the size or volume of their writing. Um, the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel, uh, consist of the first several books of prophets in the Old Testament, and then Hosea begins the minor prophets, and there are 12 in all of them. Now, if you were to look closely, you would find that Daniel has only 12 chapters, and the book of Hosea has 14. So you might wonder, well, why is it then that Daniel isn't considered a minor prophet if Hosea is? But the real reason, if you look more closely, is that Daniel has about, well, a little over 350 verses, and Hosea, although it's more chapters, has only 197 verses. So it's, it is intent, it, it really, uh, it is shorter than the book of, Hosea, of Daniel. And it is the first of, as I said, the 12 minor prophets. But minor not in context, minor in terms of the volume of the writing. And, Joel, if you recall, spoke a lot about the last days, and so we will find also does Hosea. As a matter of fact, in our study tonight, we're going to see a reference to the last days at least three times in the short portion that we'll be looking at. Uh, we'll probably go fairly quickly through the book, uh, but it's very, very powerful and very, very important, especially with regard to the nation of Israel. I want to spend a little bit of time just giving a background of the history of the Jewish people uh, back in Hosea's day and several hundred years prior to his time. The nation of Israel were split into two separate nations. We called the northern ten tribes the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern two tribes, the southern kingdom of Judah. And they were split into two separate nations all the way back to the time just immediately following Solomon's reign, where Solomon's son, Rehoboam, upset the northern ten tribes because of his unwillingness to lower the taxes. And uh, the tribes of the northern ten groups of Jewish tribes split from his kingdom into their own kingdom, and they appointed themselves a king whose name was Jeroboam. So Rehoboam in the south, reigning over Judah and Benjamin, Jeroboam in the north, reigning over the other ten tribes of Israel, in the nation that was basically established uh, in opposition to Rehoboam's insistence upon overtaxation. I'm surprised that since we're experiencing some of the same kinds of things that we haven't seen a whole lot more of 
that kind of desertion uh, between the federal government and several of the states that are getting hit so very hard with the, the taxes and other things that are going on. Uh, perhaps we're moving in that direction. I don't know. But it was the case with the nation of Israel. They became two separate nations, and they were at odds with one another for several years. They did not get along. There were several times when they were fighting very, very severe losses on both sides resulted from that. But over the course of time, um, the northern ten tribes began to prosper, and they prospered under several kings, um, none of which were good kings. All through their history, and it was a relatively short history, but all through their history as a nation, they never had one single godly king. They immediately began to rebel against the Lord God by establishing the worship of calves uh, that were made and set up in the southernmost portion in Ephraim and the northernmost portion in Dan. And they insisted, the leaders of that nation insisted that people worship the gods of the Canaanites as well as the God of Israel. And so they began to move away from God, and it was a terrible time of, as far as their uh, system of faith in God was concerned. Uh, there was idolatry, there was all kinds of worship of, of false gods that resulted in the offering up of their own children to those gods. They believed that it was those gods that were giving them the prosperity that they had been experiencing. But it was God himself who had been doing that, the Lord God, Jehovah, the one that was their God, but they didn't recognize him as the source of their prosperity, much like our nation as well. I think we'll see some similarities as we move forward in our study in the book of Hosea between that nation of Israel and some of the things that we are experiencing in our own nation as well. So it is relevant. It is good to know uh, what God thinks of such things and Hosea doesn't mince any words with regard to what God thinks about that kind of rebellious attitude toward him. Hosea wrote primarily to that northern ten tribes of Israel. There is a few, There are a few places where uh, he does refer to the nation of Judah, um, but for the most part it is a prophecy regarding the northern ten tribes. And the only other prophet during the time that Hosea wrote was the prophet Amos, who also wrote against the nation of the northern ten tribes of Israel at about the same time. In the south, in Judah, during the time of Hosea, we know that Isaiah was prophesying along with Micah. Again, they were prophesying against the nation of Judah in the south. But Hosea prophesied about the fact that the nation of Israel was going to become a nation that used to be but would be no longer. They would be annihilated. They would be uh, destroyed by a, an invading force. Hosea lived to see that invasion. It happened in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians invaded the northern ten tribes and took the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern ten tribes, and they began to uh, treat Israel uh, very, very uh, harshly, and 
they began to take all of the people of Israel and move them out of the land into various places in the Assyrian uh, Empire. And so they were removed from their land in 722 B.C., almost entirely. There was only a small remnant of the people left, mostly very poor farmers and uh, people that were uh, left behind were to tend the land. And some of them were Levites and they were expected to show the other peoples who were coming into the land how to worship the God of Israel. The sad part is they didn't know themselves how to worship the God of Israel because they had forgotten their God. So it's a sad history that Hosea is referring us to uh, and prophesying about in this interesting book. He began his prophecy probably around 780 B.C. And again, he lived to see the invasion of the Assyrians in 722 B.C. So it's pretty likely that he prophesied over a period of 60 or so years. But again, he saw the demise of Israel just as Jeremiah later saw the demise or fall of Judah. That happened in 586 B.C. So Jeremiah isn't a contemporary of Hosea, but they both saw the destruction of their nation, the nation that they loved, the people that they uh, worshipped God with when those who did worship God were alive and doing that. Uh, but both of those prophets were very, very saddened by the things that were going on in their nation, both Jeremiah in the south later and Hosea in this northern part of the nation of Israel during this particular time frame in which he's writing this great book. So, being a contemporary of Isaiah, we know that there are several things that we can see with regard to that time period that is well documented in the books of Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Uh, you can go there. That's the history of the people. And the time frame in which Hosea is writing is covered pretty well from about chapter 19 of Second Chronicles all the way through to 25. And in Second Kings, the majority of that book is very much a part of what Hosea is talking about in this portion. So you have a lot of historical documentation internally with the Bible written during the time that Hosea has written this. Hosea had a compassion for his people. And his prophecy is a very, very amazing prophecy in the way that God used Hosea as an example, kind of a living illustration of what God was feeling in his heart. And I say that anthropomorphically. God is not like us in terms of a form with a beating heart, but God's got a sense of compassion and his heart, if you will, is toward his people. They are his Beloved, They are his chosen people. They always have been. And in the time of Hosea, he was considering them to be his own wife. He had 
betrothed them. He had taken them to himself as his own wife. They were his people in that sense. And yet they had left him and became idolatrous and turned away from him. And in that idolatry, God considered it to be an adulterous situation. Adultery is when a married partner leaves his or her partner and goes and has a relationship with another person. That is what God looks at the nation of Israel as having done, and that is what Hosea is here writing about. And again, the first three chapters that we'll be looking at, I think, tonight, are chapters that describe the way that God asked of Hosea to demonstrate how heartbroken he was by asking Hosea to do something very, very peculiar. As a matter of fact, many people look at what is required of Hosea by God to be almost a sinful thing. But it is, remember, God instructing Hosea to do this to give us a very, very powerful illustration of how God feels about his people. God used the prophets in the Old Testament like Isaiah, here in Hosea, and Ezekiel, and others to give very, very personal living illustrations. You remember God asked Isaiah to walk about naked uh, for a period of time. He asked Ezekiel to lay on, lay on his side for several days and then after that period of time lay on his other side for several days to give an example, again, as a personal living illustration of what God was saying to his people. And we're going to find here in these first chapters that God is asking Hosea to do something amazingly difficult. But Hosea does it because he has the Lord God instructing him to do this. He's an obedient servant of God. An amazing thing that he is willing to do. So that having been said, let's look finally now at the particular time frame. And Hosea does do what Joel did not do with regard to his introduction into this letter. He tells us some specifics about the time frame in which he lived and in which, during which he wrote. And it's found in the very first verse of this great book. It says in verse 1 of Hosea chapter 1, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Notice that the kings of Judah are mentioned first, and there are Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, four kings during their reign. Their reigns were obviously relatively short compared to the reign of Jeroboam in the north, who was reigning all during the time that Hosea lived and prophesied. So that gives us a very specific time frame. Now this Jeroboam is not the same Jeroboam that I mentioned earlier, who was the original king of the northern ten tribes. This is what we typically call Jeroboam II. Same name, but came along much later. In fact, he is a, uh, he is a descendant of Jehu. And Jehu took over the throne from Ahab. 
You may remember Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel, the evil woman who basically reigned on behalf of her evil husband, but he was a weakling. Ahab was told by God through the prophet Ezekiel that his dynasty would end and he would not have any descendants who would follow after him. Now, that came to pass and it came to pass shortly after Ahab died. When Ahab died, a man who was one of his generals immediately took control of the northern ten tribes by usurping the right of Ahab's son to take the throne. He had them all killed. Every one of Ahab's 70 sons were killed at Jehu's command. Now that was part of God's purpose and plan. He had asked of Jehu to do that which he had done. However, the way that Jehu did it was absolutely against God's perfect plan. And so, after Jehu had completely annihilated all of Ahab's descendants and succeeded onto the throne, God judged Jehu and said that to him that his descendants would not last forever because of what he had done. He was an evil king and he had the heads of all 70 of Ahab's children taken off. Uh, that was not God's plan. God wanted to make sure that Ahab's descendants would not take the throne. But he had no intention for Jehu to be so bloodthirsty as he was. And not only did he do that with Ahab's descendants, but all of Ahab's family were taken and destroyed. Many of the people who followed in Ahab's court were also destroyed. Blood was shed that should not have been shed in Jehu's overzealous plan to take the throne. Well, Jehu did reign for a season, and he had three generations that followed him that were descendants of Jehu. One of those was Jeroboam, the last of those were descendants of Jehu. After Jeroboam, another uh, usurping of the throne took place, and it was immediately after that that the Assyrians came down and wiped out the nation of Israel in 722 B.C. So the northern ten tribes never had a good king, and there was all kinds of all kinds of difficulties with regard to those kings trying to keep their kingdom alive and established, and the dynasty that they wanted to pass on to their children didn't really very often happen. There were a lot of assassinations, but every single one of those that took the throne in Israel were very evil, godless kings. But yet, Jeroboam, as evil and godless as he was, brought great prosperity to the nation of Israel. He had great success in military conquests early on in his reign. He established the people and many of the surrounding nations were vassal nations to Israel at the time until Assyria began to grow in power and expand its strength 
in the area around Israel, and finally encircling Israel, they came and did that which was in God's plan. That destruction had to happen because God intended for it to be so. The reason? They had left their God. Now in the southern kingdom, not every king was a good king, but several of them were. But almost every one of the kings in Judah, whether they were good or bad, were judged against what David had accomplished. And some of them did what David did, but they didn't attain to that which David had attained to in terms of the way that they lived out their own lives. Some of them, like Hezekiah and, and Jehoshaphat and, and others, Uzziah, they were good kings for the most part. But not all. But during their reigns, they were always descending from the one man, David. In Judah, every single king that followed after David were descendants of David until the Babylonian captivity. And then that, that kingdom dynasty stopped then. Again, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time with regard to Judah tonight, but that gives us an overall view, I think, of, of the conditions in which Hosea found himself prophesying and it was a very sad time for him because the nation had turned away from their God. And yes, there was great prosperity. Yes, there were things going on that they thought were excellent for them in terms of the way things were going for individuals in the country. They were growing. They were considered to be not only prosperous, but also a very attractive uh, nation to do business with and to come in and live a quiet life, if you so choose. It was an agricultural society, uh, but there were a lot of merchants that were doing very well in trading and, and doing things with other nations. It was a time that they could look at and say, wow, we are being so blessed. But instead of giving God the credit for that being blessed, they gave the gods of the Canaanites the credit, the Baals, the, the gods of uh, Molech and, and Meshach and all of the other gods that were well known by the nations around them and they began serving them and offering up sacrifices to them and neglecting the one true God. That's the reason why we've got this book of Hosea. And again, remember, Hosea is a living illustration. So let's look together now at what I mean by that. Because now he's, in verse 1, introduced the timing of what he has begun to do in writing this prophet, book of prophecy. But now he says in verse 2 that God had called him and there was a special task that God had instructed him to do for God to give that illustration that we're talking about. It says in verse 2, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. It's interesting to note there's a lot of different opinion, of opinions on whether or not what God was telling Hosea to do was to 
take a woman who was already a prostitute, a harlot, or whether he was taking a woman who would become a harlot or a prostitute after she became his wife. Whichever of those two possibilities are true really doesn't make a whole lot of difference as far as the plan of God, the purpose of God in having Hosea write this. But it is a source of argument that is somewhat important, so I wanted to just basically touch on that. I believe personally that it is just as likely that Hosea didn't know she was a prostitute when he took her as his wife. And I only say that because God took Israel to himself before she prostituted herself. And if he is a picture of what God has experienced, then his experience ought to line up somewhat with what God has experienced with regard to his own relationship with his people. That's the only reason I would think that most likely he took this woman while she was not yet entering into prostitution, but the children that are born to her, some of them will indeed be born through her having committed adultery and being impregnated by other men. We'll see that as we move forward. But here in verse 2, God says, Take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry that will be born to, to her. And the reason is because the land has committed great harlotry. Notice that he says the land has committed great harlotry. The people have committed great harlotry. But the people are in the land that God has given to them. And he considers them to be just united as the same entity. The land and the people are interwoven. And God is saying that the land will also suffer from the people's mistakes and choices that they make. He says in verse 3, So he sent, or rather he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. That is a statement that implies that he fathered this child. This is their first child born to Hosea and to Gomer. And then the Lord says to him, after the child is born, call his name Jezreel. Now Jezreel is a Hebrew word that means God will sow, or it can also mean God will scatter. The idea is in that day when they sowed seed, they would scatter the seed on the ground, just throwing it on the ground haphazardly, and wherever it landed, it would either land on fertile soil or on rocks, and you know the culture that was that area filled with all kinds of stones. Some of, some of those seeds did not fall on good soil. Others did. But he is telling Hosea, this is what I want you to name this child, Jezreel. Because God is going to scatter his people. He's going to take and move them out of the land. And that is the reason that God is now telling uh, Hosea to name his son, his firstborn, Jezreel. 
Because he says in verse 4, again, call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. Now remember I said Jehu had the 70 sons of Ahab beheaded. Well, it was because of where they were located that God is speaking against this situation uh, against the house of Jehu. Because Jehu had found out that the 70 sons of Ahab were being protected in the city known as Jezreel. It's in the northern area of Ephraim. And he went to Jezreel and insisted that the people of Jezreel surrender to his army. And they did not want to fight them because they knew that Jehu had a very powerful army and he'd already conquered uh, much of the territory and they didn't want to be a part of the slaughter. So they asked, what can we do to avoid this? And he said to them, give me the heads of all the sons of Ahab. And they did. That is the travesty that took place in Jezreel that God remembered that it happened many years before that. And he says, bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel because of that event. It shall come to pass, it says in verse 5, in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now that's an interesting statement because what he's saying is he's coming to the place where there is going to be a day where Israel will be broken in the valley of Jezreel. That did take place when the Assyrians invaded and they came through Jezreel. That great valley of Jezreel is also known as the Valley of Megiddo. It is where the nations will gather together in the last days at the battle known as Armageddon. It's the very same place. That is where the Assyrians came and defeated the nation of Israel. He's telling us this is going to take place very soon. Verse 6 says, And she conceived again, second time now, and bore a daughter. Now notice it doesn't say bore him a daughter. She bore a daughter. The implication in the Hebrew is that it was not his child. So this is the first indication of her prostituting herself and becoming pregnant in the process of committing adultery. She conceived and bore a daughter. And then God said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah. Now, Lo-Ruhamah means no compassion, no pity, no mercy. God is compassionate. And I'm reminded that we sang the song on Sunday. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and full of mercy. He's saying here to Hosea that his mercy and his compassion will no longer be extended to the nation of Israel. This is a condemning statement by a God who says he is a compassionate God. Psalm 111, Psalm 103, they say the same thing. Over and over again we see in the Old Testament the compassion of God demonstrated over and over again for his people. But God does set limits to his compassion. And here we find that he has indeed set a limit with regard to his beloved wife, Israel. The nation that should have been his no longer wanted him 
and wanted to stray from him. And because of that, he was to have no compassion. And he named his daughter no compassion. The word lo ruhama, the prefix lo, L-O, is just simply the Hebrew word for no. No compassion. And we'll see that prefix again in a few minutes. He says the reason that he wants him to call her lo ruhama in the end of verse 6 is for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. And he did. They were completely removed with the exception of a very small remnant in 722 B.C. Verse 7 says, Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Take note of what he's saying here. He's speaking to the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes, but he makes reference here of Judah and it's a very, very important reference because this is a historic fact and it's recorded in the scriptures so that we can know precisely how this was fulfilled. God says again, verse 7, Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, or battle, by horse or horsemen. Now Assyria came against Israel again in 722. After they conquered the northern ten tribes, they descended into Judea, Judah, and began to conquer several of the cities outside of Jerusalem until they came and encircled the city of Jerusalem with about 185,000 soldiers. Now, Hosea says they're not going to take Judah. Isaiah also wrote of this, it's recorded in the book of Isaiah and also in the book of Second Kings how God accomplished this. Hezekiah was king at the time. The general of the Assyrian army sent a letter to Hezekiah saying, Surrender or you're all going to die. He brought that letter into the temple. He laid before the Lord and cried out to God, Lord, you see what they have said against you. Can you not do something on behalf of your people and save us, Lord? He pleaded with God. He cried out to God. And God gave an answer. That very night, God sent an angel, one angel, we're told, that slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers outside and camped around the city of Jerusalem. Not one arrow entered the city of Jerusalem. Just as the prophet Isaiah spoke, it came to pass. Just as Hosea here speaks, he didn't use bow, he didn't use a sword, he didn't use horses or horsemen, he did it himself. He protected the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, and the Assyrian army was wiped out. A very few of them were only left to go back to report that the terrible thing that had happened to them occurred when they were circling the city of Jerusalem. Verse 8 now tells us, Now, when she had weaned Lohuhama, probably two or three years later, she conceived and bore a son. Again, there's no mention of his being the father of this son. So this is a second implication of her whoredom. And she bore a son, and God says to Hosea, in verse 9, Call his name Lo-Ami. Now remember the word prefix, Lo means no. I means, Ami means my people. They are not my people. God is saying this through Hosea. Again, 
Hosea is being asked to become a picture, a living illustration of what God was experiencing with his people with regard to his wife. And Hosea's wife had committed harlotry, just as Israel was now doing against their God. And now he's saying, they are not my people. Call his name, the third child, Loami, for you are not my people, Israel, and I will, be, I will not be your God. Now that's a pretty serious statement. I will not be your God. He had told them from the beginning when he took them out of the land of Egypt, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now he's telling them through Hosea, that's off. You are not my people and I will not be your God. But is it permanent? Is it forever? No, 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 and no. There are some who teach that God has not continued his favor with the people of Israel that he cast them off and he would not take them back. And they use this verse as a verse to prove that thing that they preach. But all you need to do is look down from that verse to verse 10 and following, and you see that this is not permanent. God has a future plan for his people Israel. We've not yet seen that plan completely brought back into focus, but it will. In the last days, it definitely, most certainly will. The people of Israel are not lost. He knows who they are. We may not know and may not be able to identify who they are, but that's not a problem for God. But verse 10 tells us the answer to that ridiculous statement that God has chosen to forsake his people and will never take them back. He tells us just the opposite in these next verses. Verse 10 says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in that place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. There will be a restoration. A great multitude will come and be restored in the last days. They will be his people once again. And he's not talking about the church. There's no replacement theology acceptable in this passage because we, the church, are not Israel. We are not to occupy the land that they occupied. We are not to be receiving the blessings that are going to be described in these following verses it is the nation of Israel that is to receive those blessings. He says again in the latter part of verse 11, you are sons of the living God. Or rather, rather verse 10. Now in verse 11 he says, then the children of Judah and the children of Israel, then, it's not yet happened, it will take place, then, he's speaking of a future time, he's speaking of a time that Joel spoke of and all of the other prophets spoke of, the last days, the end of time, the days of the millennial reign of Christ, the days that follow the tribulation period, the days after the time of Jacob's trouble. He is calling them to become his people once again. And verse 11 says, Then at that time the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, that's Jesus, 
and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Again, that's a reference not to the Assyrian invasion this time, but the day of Armageddon, the battle that will ensue following the seven years of tribulation that are spoken of by Daniel and confirmed by all of the other prophets and given all of that uh, New Testament evidence and, and, uh, and the statements that are written by John in the book of Revelation regarding those last seven years and those years following after. These are the things that are being spoken of. Now, chapter 2 continues to talk about the relationship that God had and wants to have with his people. So he says in verse two, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. God wants to extend his mercy. But they're unfaithful. Listen to what he says. Bring charges against her, verse 2. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. For she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlot trees from her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her, as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. Now, it's interesting that Hosea is speaking on behalf of God with regard to the people of Israel, but he's also tying, weaving that same concept, that same mindset into his own relationship with Gomer, the wife that had become an adulterous woman. She left him. She deserted him. And she went after other lovers. And we're going to see that as we continue to read through these verses in chapter 2. It says in verse 4, I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She conceived them or she who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. So this woman, Gomer, had left Hosea after these men who she assumes was taking better care of her than Hosea had been taking care of her. That's why she went away and after followed after these individuals, whoever they might have been, and she became an adulterous woman. It says in verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in, so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. Gomer will indeed come back to Hosea. Apparently, she does that when he will find in the later portion of chapter 3, or I guess it's in chapter 2, later on as we read through this text that we're reading tonight, she's going to come back to Hosea because he's going to buy her at a slave market. That's where she ends up. But the picture that is being given here is also extended to the God and his relationship with his people. They left him. They went after other gods. They were like this woman seeking after her lovers. They thought that 
the gods of the Canaanites were the ones responsible for blessing them, for giving them such great prosperity. But it wasn't those gods, it was the God. And we'll see that as we move forward. It says in verse 8, For she did not know that I gave her the grain, and new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. You see, God is saying, I'm the one who did that for them. But they didn't see that. They didn't recognize that. They didn't believe it was me. So verse 9 says, Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time, my new wine in its season, and I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And I will destroy her vines, her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry, and went after her lovers, but she forgot me, says the Lord. You see what God is saying here? This is all about himself. Yes, it's a picture that Gomer's experience has demonstrated in having left Hosea and gone after her lovers. But it's a type of, a picture of what Israel has done as described here in these verses that we've read to God. Now you would think that God would be done with them, as many people have said. But again, the following verses tell us otherwise. God's mercy is indeed extended unto his people. Verse 14 says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. The valley of Achor is in southern Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River. It's where the Israelites crossed over from, that was, which was Moab at that time, into the land of Israel, across the Jordan River, to the territory where the city of Jericho was. That is the valley of Achor. And remember, it was there that Achan decided to take spoil for himself and hid it in his tent. And God was angry. And when they went to the next city, Ai, to try to take that city, they were beaten severely. And the reason was because there was sin in the camp. But they went joyfully from Jericho because God had given them a great victory. And God promised to give them victory if they would be obedient. And here he's saying, in the day that he brings them back to himself, it would be like the day when they crossed the Jordan and saw the hand of God completely destroy the city of Jericho as they circled around it for seven days blowing trumpets. It shall be, it says in verse 16, in that day, again, a reference to the end times, it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day, again, 
This is the third time. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. That is going to happen again in the last days. And then he says in verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. He's talking to the people of Israel, the nation of the Jews, not the church. He is betrothing them to himself forever. He says, yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Remarkable promise of God to the nation of Israel after having seen so much destruction that will come their way as a result of their idolatrous, idolatrous and lustful, fleshful attitude towards the gods of the Canaanites and rejecting the God of Israel. They will come back and they will see His mercy in the last days as it is described here. A wonderful story that will be indeed fulfilled in the last days. Verse 21 again mentions the last days again. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer me with grain, with new wine and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel, the place of scattering, the place of the defeat of the armies at the battle of Armageddon. There will be a sowing of plenty in that day, I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. Again, he's repeating what he had said earlier. And they shall say, you are my God. Now, chapter 3 is a relatively short, short chapter. There's only five verses, so I'm going to complete that verse, or those verses with you here tonight, because it's the end of the similitude. It's the end of the example that is given with regard to Hosea having taken Gomer as his wife. And he's going to now describe his willingness to take her back, to buy her from a slave market, as I said earlier. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to me, Go ahead, again, love the woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. He bought her because she was enslaved. He paid a slave's price. Actually, it's only the half price of a slave in those days. But he bought her to bring him back to himself, bring her back to himself rather. And it says in verse 3, And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man so too will I be toward you. So I'm making a covenant with you. This is what I expect of you. This is what I do for you. Just like God speaking to the nation of Israel. This is what I expect of you. This is what I will do for you. He says, finally in verse 4, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Keep in mind, the people were dispersed among the nations. Uh, the Syrian empire was very, very large. And they distributed 
the people of the nations that they captured into all the various nations that were part of their empire. And they weren't lost. They maintained their ethnicity. They maintained their affiliation with the other tribes as the tribes of the nation of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. They continued to be Jews all through those years. And it says they were abiding without a king, without a prince, outside of the land. And it was indeed fulfilled. They in the northern ten tribes were taken in 722 B.C. The southern tribes of Judah were taken in 586 B.C. They were taken out of the land, but they were able to come back into the land and they were able to establish the land for a while until the Roman Empire. And then the Romans took them out of the land again. The Diaspora, beginning from 70 A.D. and the years following, they were removed from the land again. And then for almost 1900 years, they were not able to call any land their own. They did not have a homeland to call their own. They continued to have an ethnicity, ethnicity, a people group that maintained their faith in God. Somehow they maintained their heritage. They maintained their identity as Jews throughout those periods of many, many years until 1948. They came back into the land, and that's what God is talking about here in verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. It's being put together now. The stage is being set for this fulfillment of this great prophecy. We're living in the last days, people, and we're seeing the the eventuality of God doing for his people what he has described here in these pages. Oh, it's so wonderful to know God's word and that he will indeed fulfill every single promise. Every promise that we know has been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. There's no reason to spiritualize any of these prophecies because none of the prophecies that had been historically fulfilled needed any spiritualization at all, did they? They were literal. They were given literally by prophets of the God of Israel to be fulfilled in a literal sense. That's why I believe very strongly that everything that we've been reading and have been reading and will be reading will be indeed fulfilled in the last days because God has said it. He says in Isaiah that is there any God like me? And the answer is no. And he gives a reason. There is no other God who can tell you things that are yet to come, like I am telling you. And because I have told you things that are yet to come and they are being fulfilled, then you should know that I am truly your God. That is the case and still is today. He's bringing his people back. He's got a work to do with the nation of Israel. All 12 tribes. And by the way, in Jesus' day, the Jews who were living in the region known as Judea were not just the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin with a few Levites. There were also other tribes in 
the land at the time. We know that because one of the tribes is named specifically in the gospel records. We're told in Luke that Anna was a descendant of Asher, one of the ten northern tribes of Israel, was represented in Judea among the Jews in Jesus' day. So don't say that the twelve tribes are lost. That's foolishness. It's just not true. It's not biblical. But what we do know is that God will bring His people and has been bringing His people back into the land. They are one nation. They have one language. They have been united as a people once again in the land as Israel. They aren't yet spiritual Israel. They will, but there's a price for them to pay before they come to that. But the book of Romans clearly states in chapter 11 that all Israel will be saved. That remnant that will have survived will indeed enter the millennial kingdom. And every one of them will see the one whose hands have been pierced as they enter into his kingdom that he will establish. And we'll be reading more and more about that as we continue in this great prophecy. So let's stop there for tonight. God bless you. I know it was a long time uh, through this teaching tonight, but I, I pray that it was helpful. And I pray that if you have any questions, that you can reread it and see how God is moving in the peoples of Hosea's day and in the promises that he has made for the people of Israel in our day. God bless you. Grace and peace.